I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, book author, Forbes columnist, and your host. I'm excited to share this conversation with Arthur Hu, the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer of Lenovo, a global leader in the technology sector with revenues exceeding $50 billion annually. Art graciously shared his thoughts on a variety of topics featured in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. In this interview, we dive into several of the book's themes, including process, technology, and strategy. Art describes how Lenovo has managed the shift from a project to a product orientation and shares lessons learned from that change. We also discuss how Lenovo uses cloud technology to improve key applications and explore how Art ensures IT and business strategy remain aligned, among a variety of other topics. Stick around after the interview to hear more about the five themes highlighted in the book. Our discussion kicked off with Art sharing insights about Lenovo's shift from a project to a product-focused IT orientation. In terms of process, if we think about the project or product management, you know, one of the things that I found I had to focus a lot on when I first became CIO, right, I focused a lot more on the, the technical parts. Right? And it was partly because I wanted to upskill my team and make sure that they had the skills necessary to, we did a bit of a transition of more owning our own fate, by which I mean having the skills in-house to at least be the brains of the operation. Right? You know, for historical reasons, we had lean a little more heavily on the spectrum towards outsourced, including on some of the planning. And so, but also the technical delivery. And so initially I focused a lot on the technical delivery. Let's make sure we have engineers in the latest skills, React or whatever uh, was around the portfolio that we were delivering. Over time, I've come to realize that you, you need to have a much more balanced approach, right? Especially with an outcome towards value. The whole point about idea generation uh, and prioritization have increasingly become weighted. Because what I found is if you overweight too much on the engineering side only, where we started to get to was we had a lot of engineers who were excited to build things. And it's very natural that they would just pick up whatever was in front and start to go with it. Uh, and that started to lead to fragmentation and a long tail of projects where we were building many things, but we weren't as focused as we could be. The most symptomatic would simply be when we tried to do business value in reviews uh, with the business or at milestone points. And we'd find ourselves, the most telling symptom would be really around having trouble articulating a clear story. And then when we dug into that, it was because we were fragmented. We would have dozens or hundreds of projects and it's very hard to weave a coherent story around that. And so as we brought on board more skill engineering skill, we found it's equally important to keep that balanced in the idea generation and prioritization phase. Right? You wanna be firmly rooted in being able to deliver things and to move quickly without having to rely entirely, right? not to say uh, external help is not welcome, but to use it appropriately. But at the same time, around the roadmap and the strategy and the planning, right? we've had to reinvest additionally around the idea generation and the prioritization to make sure that not only can we deliver, but we're putting enough care uh, and thoughtfulness into the the planning, right? And so we've kind of come full circle, which is happily now we've upgraded our engineering skills and we're also investing more with the business so that we can focus on making sure we're doing not just the right things, not just we're doing interesting things, but interesting things that have that have impact. And that leads to the other part, which is around change management. In addition to prioritizing well, We've also gotten to the notion of expanding. Again, when I first became CIO, it was very much on, well, let's make sure we deliver. And so that became 
a real keyword. Everyone's like, well, the CIO wants to be able to deliver and we have to become kind of self-directing and mostly sufficient to be able to deliver things on our own. At, over time, as a companion to that, the point of delivery has, we'll say, expanded or evolved, right? To the to the one point that I said around the idea generation and the prioritization to say, how do we actually have a seat at the table? And so this notion of business partnership became very clear in how important its role was and the shift away from order taker into partner or even in some cases integrated with the business and it's something that's an ongoing work in progress right we've had uh, great successes right where we're winning awards and the business is extremely excited and we're rolling things out on the other hand right i'm still having meetings where literally this is kind of a, a story that's very illuminative and eye-opening where the business said who's my partner Right, like on the org chart, you say this person is my partner, but I've never met them before. Right? They've never been at my staff meeting, right? I know who the person is and they seem like a nice person, but if you're gonna call them my partner, then they should really have a seat at the table and be involved. Uh, and so again, it's kind of expanding out from just delivery into having a seat at the table so you can influence and be a part of the discussion. And then on the other end, the notion of delivery, not having a technical boundary, but really having a business endpoint. That's a big shift in mentality on our processes as well around change management. And here it's simply the recognition and the shift in mindset, right? It sounds so simple, but it's very profound from my project went live, right? That's the technical endpoint. I had the move to production over the weekend. We stayed up all night and 48 hours and went live to, right? Again, as part of the broader shift on product model ownership and technical boundaries, you know, not being the sole source of milestones to, well, now how is it doing when we go live? Are people using it? What's the feedback? Are we actually delivering the value we have? And sometimes those aren't necessarily straightforward questions because it takes time for people to ramp up. Sometimes it's productivity that you measure. It's not necessarily always just directly dollars in the top line or the bottom line. And so being thoughtful and expanding the scope of our processes to say, well, it doesn't end with some technical go live, right? And especially in the product model where you own something permanently, we've had to explicitly shift the metrics and the focus to say, well, you own it ongoing. And so we have to incent the teams and adjust explicitly to say, stay with it, right? Stay with the business and make sure what you're doing is actually delivering what you thought and making that explicit, right? And so that's also been an interesting change where we had to expand the definition of what it meant to go live and in a, in a much more business value outcome oriented way and explicitly change some of the incentives and the structure together. So when you add having a product team that owns something that's much more natural for them right, to think long-term, but then explicitly saying, please change and think about business value right, and stay with the business over time. Those were all, you know, both on the structure as well as on the processes, the incentives, those things needed to come together to really drive that home. I was gonna say a couple questions, great, great overview, Art. As you think about the shift from a project mindset to a product mindset, what situations is a project orientation still appropriate versus how comprehensive is the move to products in your mind? So there's probably two ways. I think about this a lot and I'm smiling because it's, uh, it's a really good question that we spend a lot of time and it's meaningful. First, I would say it at two levels, which is I had to spend a lot of time in saying, I want everyone to have a product management mindset, right? So on that level, 
I think some of the key drivers of why we want to move to a product oriented and a product management model for long-term ownership, right? For more autonomy and light coupling so you can move more quickly and also in getting closer to the business. I think those three factors are, I think, timeless in a sense, right? And so those, I think, are at the core of what product management looks to take to the next level. And so, so that's one, right? Because I want the product management mindset of why we do that to be to suffuse the organization, right? Everyone should be thinking about how I think long-term and not just get to the technical go live. Everyone should be thinking, how do I be, have a seat at the table with the business and not be an order taker? Everyone should think about kind of the long-term ownership of, hey, this is an area that I own, not just for a few weeks or months. That being said, I, on the execution, we've also had to spend time to say, look, there are times where it still makes sense to run projects versus in a product model. Because what, and, and it's a funny story, because what happened again, with the, the funny thing about naming is when you're not careful, is when we declared we wanted to go that, right, we started again to create, similar to when Gartner came out with this kind of bimodal, right, kind of like old IT legacy versus new fun IT, right, something similar happened. When we first declared we wanted to go in the direction, there was this mad scramble to label yourself agile, whether or not you were, whether or not it was actually anchored in any sort of reality. And so that caused a lot of confusion because people started to say, I'm agile and I'm in a product model, even if they weren't. And so we had to walk that back and say, well, let's think about why. And so to get back to your specific question, projects for us make sense when there is a significant new piece of work, right? That is well known and it's going to take more than the baseline level of resources that you normally have, right? Or it's something new where we don't have today. A good example for us would be we're in the middle of migrating, you know, some of our CRM from one platform to another. And so that's a project. We have no resources on the new platform, right? It's a well-defined scope. Let's migrate. And, it, and it's a size of which, well, it's definitely not just take a few people who are working on it today, right? It's going to be something that impacts right, thousands and tens of thousands of users, customers, and partners around the world and in a defined time frame with a defined objective. And so that's a project, right? And it was funded separately with its own capital plan. Uh, and so we find for things that are either larger, right? There's no one answer, but the dimensions around which we tend to settle is, right, it's significantly larger than kind of the run rate. And we know that it'll be there for some period of time with a known endpoint, right? It's not an endless, we just have to go on a journey, but we know we need to have a particular objective. And then that we know there's an, enough certainty that we can size it. So yeah, so I think if there's certainty, right? If there, we know there's kind of a defined timeline and defined scope beyond what we're normally working on, those have tended to fit running an actual project. And it's funny because I actually had to talk both in my strategy and my roundtables and my kickoffs after we had, it got so bad about people misunderstanding. I said, project is not a dirty word right? because, you know, I think I think project is not a dirty word because it's perfectly suitable. And so we just have to be careful about creating this dual class system and understanding right. the mindset of principles, which are universal behind product management mm -hmm. right? versus there are situations where projects are legitimately a good idea and running Right, an agile team, right? You don't want to sprint your way up to across like a hundred million dollars with it, right? It's just, it wasn't the right thing. So on the flip side, you know, product are things where, right? We find running in a product model or where, A, there's good business trust and working in that way, because that was the other thing perhaps that I left off. Sometimes the business, because of the increased engagement uh, in a product model uh, and the increased intensity, they're not as accustomed. And when they're not acclimated, it may not yield good results because they just don't know how to get the most out of the process. 
And so when product works better, it's either gotten into a steady state where the, and the business has good trust about what we want to do, but not necessarily a clear end state. A good example, the classic for us is around e-commerce and our online properties and capabilities. We, we make investments, but the business is used to thinking of, well, we have these priorities, but we don't know exactly how we're going to get there, but we know we're just going to keep going. And so having gotten into that mode, and they're very comfortable to say, well, I'm going to put whatever the number is, 1 million, 5 million, 10 million. It's roughly this amount of resource and we're going to partner up with you and let's just deliver. Right? And we'll check in every two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, depending on right, the time level of uh, the sprints that we do. Got it. And, and then switching to the other uh, topic that you covered nicely, change management. Whose responsibility is change management? How do you think about making sure that that's, you know, who, who manages that ultimately? So ideally where you want to get to, where I've seen it working really well, and right? if I look across at Lenovo, the teams that manage it really well, it is a joint effort, right? The best teams, they don't really differentiate, right? Because mm-hmm. the way we think about it is there's a set of activities, right? The framework that we literally use internally is a change management has a set of activities associated with it, right? Around training, engagement, communication. And then depending on the maturity of the team, Right, we have a sliding scale, right? For teams that may be more traditional or the business isn't as comfortable, right? The project or the program team will take on more of that. Right? For teams that are more mature, it doesn't matter, right? So what we try to do is make sure all the kind of roles and responsibilities are filled. And then I guess we could call it the fill rate, right? Of, well, does the BTIT team, the CIO team do that? Or does the business team do that? It will depend kind of on staffing and as well as the, the comfort. But again, the best one and what we strive for is really the business helps us take ownership because it's, and you know, change management itself, it's, it sounds like something you're managing around. And we really try to get it out of the mindset of you're doing it to someone and, and trying to, again, flip the orientation so that it's more inclusive. Hmm. So that, that's, that's very helpful. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. I mean, I think it is such an important, it's interesting to see, the number of organizations, some do this very well and have been doing it, you know, for a long time, have thought about the change aspects that are necessary in order to implement, you know, great, you know, new, new products, new projects, et cetera. And how much of it is a discrete step versus something that's part of like the, the iterations, I suppose, of, of development as well. Right. Yeah. And this one we differentiate on, a, just maybe to build on some of our conversation here earlier, this yeah. one we do also differentiate, I think, to, to the point, project versus the product side are different, right? Projects yes. are much more likely to have a formal, okay, now it's time to bring people who haven't been exposed to it to, to it, right? And that's yes. kind of a discrete step. Now let's train them. Now let's get from the super user group to the broad user group and from the broader user group to the full user group. So there tends to be much more discrete steps around that. On the product side, that tends to be less the need, right? And the higher the business engagement is along the process, then again, it's not really change management. It's just, it all feels the same because it's your daily work. The other thing that is different though is, right, to the extent we have B2B versus B2C, right? Because B2B tends to be more focused communities. And one thing we've had to find, one thing that's interesting that we found on change management, as well as just kind of how you think about design in general is that relative compared to deep b2c as at least right we found that we need to invest more in thinking through the design of the change management program for the business to business capabilities and the reason for that right kind of our experience was it's because b2c we're all consumers 
Right? And so everyone actually has some intuition that's not going to be too far off true north from what good experience looks like. Right? You can imagine, what would it be on Amazon? Right? What would it be on you know, you know, Ali or, or one of the uh, China many numerous China marketplaces? And so right, everyone has some base level intuition that's now been trained into most people who are online for any degree of time on the B2C side. Right? And so the change management there, you can rely a bit more on, on the teams so just naturally, right, your instincts will largely guide you in the right direction. Whereas when you get to some of the more sophisticated capabilities on the B2B side, where you don't have like an additional source of kind of unconscious reservoir of experience, so to say, like what does enterprise grid pricing look like? Well, that's not something you really think about a lot, right? So your, your first impression of that might not really be a good experience, right? No matter how skilled you are. So we need to put some more rigor around the things that, right? We found basically the smaller and more specialized the user groups are, the more we've had to put some rigor around the change management design, right? Precisely because it's not as intuitive uh, yeah. as you might otherwise find it. I also wanted to ask you with regard to the, uh, going back momentarily to the project product differentiation, you know, a lot of strategy, even like some of the initial strategy work that, you know, I, I wrote a book on, on IT strategy. And a lot of that is connecting the dots between your strategic plan and your portfolio of projects, which has, for, for the reasons you talk about, the, the things that are fundamentally new, oftentimes it's the strategy to pursue something that articulates the new path forward and thus new initiatives that become projects. I'm curious about your own thought process about how the connection point between strategy and products and how that differentiates, if at all, in your mind between the connection point between strategy and projects. Yeah. Is, that, is that a meaningful differentiation in your mind? Well, I think it is. And I think the level at which it's meaningful, I mean, I'm a CS guy, so as a, and you know, everyone's talking about containers, right? That's also some of the tech side that we can use as a jump off point for shortly. Yes. Um, Right. Again, in, in my mental model for this, the strategy is the starting point, right? And that's yeah. itself a confluence of what you can do and what the frontier of the possible with technology is kind of meshed together. But once you have a grasp of the strategy, I, I think the distinction for project and product is simply, it's like a container for a, a, a unit of work to get done. Right. And so I think the, the discussion just kind of to go with uh, your train of thought would simply be well given the strategy and we want to accomplish these objectives right if we take objective a well okay hyper growth for you know incubation business to take it from 10 million dollars to 100 million dollars through a direct to market channel okay well what's better for that then it's simply okay if that's the piece of work that we're trying to enable then we can just say well you now subject to some of the dimensions that we talked about we can just decide but what's the right container for that unit of work right is it a fully funded capital project with a defined timeline with the business if so maybe it's a project right if it's oh well we have a team and we just can give them 10 more resources and we believe that given right the work profile they can get there in a year just working in the way but with more resource maybe it's continues in an expanded role on, in a product model so for me it's it's just simply running the decision process on what's the right way to organize the work right but and then you root it in what's the business goal you're trying to to achieve Understood. Understood. That's great. That's really meaningful. And then, you know, I, maybe around the processes, because there's a lot around it. If we think about Agile and DevOps, we can kind of tie it with some of the technology part, right? I know it's a separate kind of bucket explicitly, but, you know, in my mind, if we think about the Agile and the DevOps process, right, as, as we've matured, we found you don't get really far if you don't have the right tooling support. Right. And so that's why I found on the process side, especially around Agile and DevOps and the whole notion of continuous integration and delivery towards the goal of more continuous value delivery. 
all the things around you know deploying cloud or having more microservices as a style of constructing applications and capabilities right containerization apis a lot of these technologies that are emerging at least for us we've deployed in service of right kind of getting towards continuous value as kind of the holy grail and our true north of what we want to do so the interesting thing that we found about about all these technologies is the integration maybe two points i think the integration is what matters and then standardization is those are the two points around technology that i would say for at least scaled organizations globally that should pay attention to the first around integration right by integration i simply mean applying the notion of a user journey and using that as the integrating framework is so important right and my example where we had to learn from experience and actually pivot where it didn't work so well is you know as we thought about deploying tools to support it we started to you know in, in kind of a hardware world right there's a phrase speeds and feeds right it, you know the if you don't if you don't have, if you're not creative enough right you just say well my processor is this many gigahertz i've got this many cores and consumers kind of wonder who cares what does that mean like i have this many no one knows what it means and we did the equivalent at least initially on tools which is like you just went out and like looked at a map and bought all these tools and we didn't pay enough attention to the experience right then same was true for our infrastructure and private cloud as we built that out, right? We would just kind of onboard these new services. We'd say, hey, there's a new database service. You can get this new DNS service. And we started adding all these services, but on the integration where we didn't have the user journey in mind. And in this case, the user was our developers, right? People who are actually using these technology components and services to build more quickly for the business. It turns out that these weren't coming together. Right, so on paper it looked great. It had we had a great catalog of tools. We could see all these logos of tools that you would see anywhere else, but we weren't putting them together, right? Because if the goal is, right, it's very it's one thing to say let's have lots of tools, right, to support DevOps, but it's another to say, am I actually making our engineer, our average engineer in the organization, more productive? Right. So an example was I was doing a roundtable and I said, hey, how is our right internally? We have a broad umbrella called Journey to Cloud. Right, which encompasses a lot of you know adopting the latest modern infrastructure and, and cloud technologies to make us more resilient as well as productive and so i asked a group of development leaders and developers engineers how's it going right we spent a lot of money in the past year and they're like well you know sound, we just we don't really know what to do right there have been some improvements but some of the basics uh, we can't even do right like things that are repetitive like i wish i could just get a development environment that lets me create an external facing web app Right, and that sounds like again, that's that's something you could imagine they do quite quite frequently. Well, because of the focus on not integrating and just deploying more services, that still took them like a you know a day or two, and they had to do all this manual interaction and call people. And if you didn't know the right people to call, sometimes you couldn't even get it done. Right. Whereas the right angle was that right. Why why don't we spend more time understanding right, the most common scenarios and then building the integration to make that one click? Because right? what the developers really wanted was click once and I get a virtual environment that's spun up and provisioned for me in 30 seconds or real time that I can then begin writing code in. Right? Instead, what we said is, hey, you've got like a smorgasbord of options, go figure it out. Right? And so I think the integration of the technology is super important, again, with your guiding light as your user journey. And in this context, user means engineer. Because right? people were like, oh, user journey, and again, people make these mental model mistakes 
where they're like, oh yeah, journeys, that's the stuff for customers, right? We just want our customers. Have, and, and, and we had to say, no guys, journey, right? everyone produces a service that's consumed by someone, right? So think of user not as a B2C customer on the web, not just a B2C customer, but whatever, whoever you're building for, right? And that's, that was hard for some of our infrastructure guys to get, and our cloud guys, to get. they're like, I just wanna build the new, new latest features or make it easier to access the newest latest features from Amazon or whoever. And that's technically interesting, but what the people really cared about was one click deployment of how I need to get to productivity. Yeah. And so I think that was, that was enlightening, right? which is the integration, right? Because it doesn't matter if you have Jenkins and Chef and Puppet, it doesn't matter if your engineers can't put it all together. The other one is really around the standardization, right? As you we were going on the journey, right, engineers being what they, they just got kind of everything under the sun. And that just raised a lot of complexity, right? There was uh, all these tools, the landscape proliferated and it just made everything harder, right? And beyond making everything harder, we had to step in and impose standards for the things that weren't differentiated because what it ended up doing was consuming more resource, right? If you have, such as, you know, your tool landscape looks too fragmented, we ended up more with just increased costs, right? You can't set up COEs, right? It becomes harder to actually administer right so you end up sucking up more time and that gets absorbed in the administration of tools again rather than developing towards capabilities so that we started to see our ratios slip as well and so we had to say guys right for stuff that's not differentiated like please just use the same ticket management system just use the same orchestration tools because that's not ultimately beyond some maybe personal preference it's not the it's not going to be what's going to it's not going to be what differentiates you so I think, you know, that, so that's the, on technology, I think that's, those are the biggest things, which is right, you still have to make sure you, you harness the power of the technology and ask the right question. And in some sense, that was eye opening for me, which is that's super important to just make absolutely clear what is the right question. Right? And so now, for example, literally for my infrastructure and cloud group that does all these tool enablements, their metric is, you know, engineering satisfaction, time to coding, right? Time to value, right? It's not how many new features did you have? It's not how, right? It's, that's really, and so that's a different question than how many features. So that's, right, again, it took some experimentation to, to get there. And, and as you think about how much reorient, as you've reoriented IT, it's sort of a, a meta question to many of the topics you've been talking about art so far, how much reorientation was necessary with your colleagues outside of IT? You know, for, for organizations, that are used to IT reporting, you know, cost on time, on budgets, you know, the sort of traditional project, and hopefully increasingly, although certainly not historically, the strength of, of IT, you know, on value as well. Naturally, it's, it's on the one hand, you are moving towards an orientation that is more familiar to a lot of the other parts of the organization. So you, one could argue that you're moving towards the language they already speak. Was there any kind of awkwardness or, re-education necessary as you adopted this new way of thinking based upon what they were used to hearing or even used to measuring the success of or lack thereof for IT? So that, yeah, that's uh, definitely touches on a lot of aspect. Uh, there's not one answer because it's, uh, we're still in the journey. And what right, we found right, right. is that everyone participates. And so we've seen parts of the business all the way from don't care, don't tell me, you're just too expensive. And I'll always think that, right? right? Uh, all the way to, you know, we're kind of, much more closer to the target state of, you know, understanding value and, and having high trust. So if we kind of take those stories along the way, we've seen it take typically a couple of quarters to a year, right, for teams that are actively working on it to kind of 
make the transition, right? And I think the big transition mentally with the business that, you know, once they start working and we deliver successfully, because it takes two, right? It doesn't, it, it, we, we can't deliver and the trust doesn't come, but where we are able to deliver, the shift in the major shift in kind of orientation for the business, I would characterize it as the shift away from false accuracy, right? Because the traditional mindset has been, show me your man day sizings down to maybe the man hour, like how, what are you doing today, right? And trying to do that too far in advance, right? Like tell me your, your like, you know, yearly plan and how many man days and what each developer is going to be doing. And you yes. can't realistically do that, but right. We were trying to impose false accuracy way far out in advance. And so the shift to value, I think for the teams that do it successfully is in building up the trust and the education comes as when the business sees that there are things that are happening that, that thereafter, right. And I think, and that remains actually still a challenging part, right? Because it, it's a, in some sense a bit fuzzier because if it's like, well, I did this sprint and it's got all the things and the business is, oh, great, I see these features and they're what we want. Let's keep going, right? There's a, I think it's a little bit different in terms of the measurement versus saying, okay, define in advance, a year in advance, how you're going to measure it and tell me how you did, right? And so I think kind of getting away from that false long-term accuracy towards something that's more real time. And then how do you instrument it so that you're much more adaptive, right? Those are probably the dimensions that are, Right, hardest, especially for people who are more kind of cost and finance oriented, right? Who are like, just, I'm giving you $10, right? It's like 30 cents to the feature rate, right? And getting away from that, I think has been the biggest transition. But I, I think the interesting part is once you get going down, if you start laying out the direction and the vision, what we found is you don't need to explicitly do that as much because typically the people and the business teams that are willing to take the journey buy into the vision in some sense. So especially for the, the teams that are kind of, they're, they're the first mover teams. They're, they already kind of see the promise, right? Whether through their, their own intuition or kind of where they want to take the business and what they've seen in the industry. Those teams tend to self-select, so you don't need to spend as much time, right? They kind of say, okay, we believe it'll happen and we'll start working. Uh, for the other businesses, and again, because there's a spectrum, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I think you don't want to get away from those things. At the end of the day, you still want the discipline and the rigor to be able to say, you know, here's what we invested and here's how we spent it. And therefore this is the, the value. I think what's been important to maintain and, you know, quite frankly, we need to strengthen if anything, right? The other way to build trust is I think through like co-determination, right? Basically the fact that the business doesn't feel like they get a big allocation of money they can't control, but that you can provide enough transparency and then go to them with a discussion of, Hey, you know, this is the money we're spending and these are the levers and the knobs that we can turn. Right? We can have better service, we can have worse service, we can have more coverage, we can have less coverage, right? We can have better response times, we have lower response times, right? You can have fewer sites or more, right? So there's all these lobs and knobs and levers that I think right, you don't want to get away from because I think that still is a valuable way of creating engagement, especially for people who are like, you're just a black box. I think the on-ramp to that is, well, let me share why we, we aren't and, right? And we actually have this well-managed in a way that, you know, as a business owner, you can, you know, engage if we want to take costs up and down right here's the kind of the knobs and levers we can do we can use to do so yeah yeah very interesting would be interested if you if you wouldn't mind checking out some of the technology components a couple of which you've alluded to even would be interested in your thought process around you know how you are evolving or, or introducing and implementing some of the concepts that are that are noted herein yes well so maybe we can talk about kind of systems availability and cloud penetration together because uh, for, for those, those have really gone hand in hand for us. Yes. Right? I noticed a couple of years ago, we had a period where we saw way too many, you know, kind of priority one production incidents, which for us is 
things that are substantively and materially impacting us. Like we can't ship orders at the end of the quarter, right? Uh, people can't quote to customers, right? Partners aren't able to self-service where they were. Uh, so we had a rash of incidents and we went through a pretty deep kind of a post-mortem on why that happened for us. And a lot of it turned out to be the architecture wasn't designed the right way. And so, you know, we started to think about it more broadly of avoiding single points of failure and then how we can use technologies because with a lot of legacy estate you know you can't influence what happened before so you had a lot of applications that had single points of failure that weren't necessarily architected in the most modern sense of the word and so what we did is we first re-scanned all the applications and the business capabilities and the most critical ones we said all right well if we need to re-engineer these because they're not band-aids you can't band-aid some of these things with an eye towards much better availability and redundancy, how we do so. And that was also what the genesis of our, you know, a much more orchestrated focus and investment in our journey to cloud. So a big part of it, I think the technologies that are here do play a big part. On the cloud, right, we've actually deepened our cloud penetration on both uh, private as well as public, right? And there's kind of two parts of that. On the public cloud, we tend to leverage it where it provides a good computing pool, right, for things that are kind of highly variable. And especially around uh, consumer promotions, business promotions. And so where computing resource, whether that's storage network or compute uh, are highly variable, right? We've architected the applications to be able to take advantage of that and only for above the baseline demand, right? To kind of use the cloud. The other thing that's actually helped significantly uh, as we've used more private and public cloud is it helps the resiliency, right? So we've also architected the applications to be able to use different availability zones, right? And to fail over, right? And cloud has been good for that because the primitives that are available in cloud, right? Versus kind of, you know, on-premise monolithic applications is you can take advantage of the horizontal scalability. And so adopting more cloud has given us a better base to be able to use kind of modern internet kind of horizontal scalability technologies to improve the resilience and availability of our key applications. And it did take a while. If your applications have been architected in a way that are, right, if they were designed 10 years ago, then they just aren't architected that way. So it was a journey to prioritize and select which ones we wanted to do. Uh, and it remains an, an ongoing uh, journey for us. You know, if I comment a little bit about microservices as a style, right, I think, you know, and APIs, because in my mind, at least I think spiritually or kind of conceptually, they're in the bucket of, how do you decompose and kind of have the, the right granularity and modularity to promote reuse? So I think they're, right, they're not entirely the same thing, but I, I think they're related enough that I tend to think about them together. So, you know, we've also explicitly pivoted our strategy and incented teams to first create services, right, at a granular level that can be reused and then incented them to actually reuse. And that's been challenging because, again, people respond to environments, but without lacking those, the default um, orientation had always been, let's just build our own thing, right? That's what engineers do. I'm an engineer, I should build. And that turns out not always to be the right mindset. So we've had to, in addition to essentially mandating people have to build composable things and reusable things uh, and communicate through things such as RESTful APIs, that are discoverable and well-documented. So that's kind of on the input side. On the output side, we've had to measure, stop measuring things like, right, because at some time people tried to measure lines of code and that's not good, 
right? We started to measure, well, how quickly can you go and how much did you reuse? And so that's been an interesting shift to say, well, there's the mindset. And then we've had to do a lot of adjustments and learning about, well, how do you actually do that? Because right? they're also, as all, with all things, you can go too far the other way, right? I think what people need to explicitly recognize about any framework is what cost does it impose, right? And when, like you asked a great question earlier, when does it make sense, right, around product and project? When do these things make sense? So same thing on microservices, container, like it's a cost to do these things. These things aren't, they're neither technically free, right? And the cost, there's a cost of complexity. So to make things reusable, right? It takes more engineering effort to make something reusable than make a one-on. So right, people were losing sight of that. And people, there was one team that had written like all these APIs. And then we looked at it on the monthly scorecard and they essentially had no reuse ever. Right? No one was ever, ever calling them outside of their own team. Like, well, if let's go look at this. And it turns out that it didn't need to be API because it was an internal thing, right? And in their rush to kind of declare themselves as modern and look, I have an API, right? They invested engineering effort in an area that had zero value, right? And in fact, just made, and now just made the, right? It's more complex because right now there's, it's a bunch of other services that people kind of have to wonder, what does it do? And is it relevant for me? Right? And so I, I think, you know, on both sides. One is you have to make sure the intent is clear. And then as teams execute, you just have to make sure you're continuing to refine kind of the guardrails, right? Use it here. Don't use it here. Oh, we made a mistake. Hey, everyone, we didn't do it well here. This is why, right? And it kind of feeds back into the system to uh, make that better. Are there, are there broad rules that are emerging art? I'm sure that they can't be universally applied. It's not black and white. I'm sure there's some, some gray that you continue to need to evaluate. But as you've learned about where to apply it and then learn where it has been applied incorrectly. Yeah. Um, what, what are some of the, the rules that are? Yeah. So, yeah. So the heuristic that we've kind of come to, right. One is, well, just as you think about from a design, right. Cause we have, enter we have architecture diagrams. As you think about it, if it looks like something that's going to kind of be any sort of junction, right. Where more people are coming to you, then that's a really good candidate. The other one, right. Again, but in, in areas where that are emerging, we don't know the other, another really helpful heuristic that we've had, to try and get out of this, which is interesting is to say, who is calling you, right? Because a lot of times the pattern you want to avoid is like developer A is like, hey, developer B is my buddy. Hey, just dump me that database field, right? Just give me like a call in and just change that like file for me, right? Just change this field for me when I tell you to do this, right? And that's the bad call. And so the heuristic was literally, all right, guys, think about your workflow. If you're getting, right, if people outside your team are regularly calling you with like, change this for me, change that for me, that's a really good indicator Right? You probably don't want them calling you and if you just gave them right, some, some function, right, some API that they can use. Uh, and that, that turned out to be tremendously helpful. People were like, oh yeah, I don't want people, because yeah, that's bothersome, right? You don't want to be uh, called all the time. And, and so that's actually, been, that's actually been one of the better indicators, right? which is look at your workflow, literally look over the past month or the quarter of who's been calling you for change right, or output. And instead of answering all those phone calls, why don't you publish the API, document it, and then say, go look at that. Right. So that, that's right. that from a behavior perspective, that was more relatable. Like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's go just, and that, that's helped. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, there are several of these, these areas that, and actually you can probably, I hope you understand, uh, a lot of what I'm focusing on here are some of the modern practices, but you know, a, a lot of what you're describing across each of these from, from project, and product orientation, agile development, DevOps, cloud, uh, microservices and API, just some of the ones that we've already covered. It's not as though the new way of doing things is universally good. 
there's a lot that is good about it and it's relevant and appropriate to implement, but it's also very important to make sure the limited limitations are well understood, right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's very fitting. They're not panaceas, I was just saying. Yeah. Right. And I think, and, and you've gotten to that, right? I think the kind of the boundary cases, the, the, right, the boundary conditions are important to, to recognize. And, and more broadly, I think very much in the in kind of the zeitgeist of the times, I think it just, it's by in, in and of itself, that also means it's hybrid, right? Because yeah. I, I very much try to avoid the, you know, the zero or one, right? And avoid the, the mental trap of, well, it's this or that, right? Because yeah. too often it's, right, it's this and, 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 and a bunch of things in the middle. Right. And I think that's, that's important for teams. And I like the phrasing, right? You don't, you want to avoid the panacea because that, right, I, I think in some sense, the reason I found that all, all, a lot of these cases where we kind of have funny stories where we smile about where it didn't work and we had to make course corrections is right, you don't want your team to become, I don't know, it's not the right word, intellectually lazy. Or you don't want it to be an excuse. Like, well, I did the agile thing. Don't blame me if it failed, right? Like I, you know, I'm doing DevOps. How can it not be right? And you said it at the strategy. So, you know, I think the key is you want to maintain the intellectual rigor of why you're applying these and for what reason and making sure at every step that it's still the right thing for the context. And in a more, you know, uncertain or complex world, right, there typically aren't such things for most companies and teams, you're not, you're at, you're efficient enough that there's not stuff of like, duh, everyone should do this all the time. Yeah. At least for the complex questions. Can I ask you with regard to enterprise architecture, are there any new learnings in recent years in terms of its institution, its, its implementation and continued use? Yeah. So the, for, I mean, for, for us, we find it incredibly valuable. Everyone is very supportive of the work, you know, for us, it's really focused on, on three things. I would say the first thing around enterprise architecture is, and I think some of it is, is, is adaptive, right. In, in, in a world where we're doing more product orientation, right. Which is, clarity of, I will call it boundaries, because when you're doing projects or everyone is system oriented, like the boundaries are set for you by the limitation of the system. But in a world where, you know, people care more about value streams, right, where they care more about the business capability as used and delivered versus what's your backend system or system supporting, that, that's been increasingly important to help avoid duplication right? and, and just the lack of clarity. And so how do we actually group things both proactively as well as, you know, defining where the product boundaries should be, how to evolve those over time, because it's a dynamic picture, I think has kind of increased in weight and importance for the EA. Because that's a bit different than here, I drew the system diagram and everyone just kind of go to your box and, and work on that. Right? I think the collaboration that's required now as we stitch together increasingly, right, well, there's always going to be, you know, things that are more cross-functional in nature. And so I think the clarity of the boundaries, as well as how to resolve it when, you know, boundaries need to change or they blur or they evolve because the business is evolving is something uh, that I think has seen an increased demand uh, on EA to go do. I think driving uh, along with the, the product and, you know, tying in with some more discussion around uh, APIs, I, I think driving reuse and providing some construct to, to do that has also been, at least for me, something that we've encouraged and, and leveraged enterprise architecture to go do. And certainly for us, that's been a shift in the last two to three years, both at the macro level, right? When we're thinking about the big pieces, one of the first gates, right? And the, but it's incredibly helpful to the point of, well, when you catch a mistake on, on when you're just whiteboarding it or doing it on a paper napkin, right? It's a million times cheaper than changing like a thousand lines of code before go live. And so we really try and invest a lot to 
drive reuse against some top-down framework of where we think the business could be. In the past, we have, right, Lenovo used to have like six or seven configurators, right, on how you could configure a PC. You really only need one, right? You need one. But we ended up with six or seven because that was the classic project mindset. So as part of shifting to the product and, and making sure teams have kind of a reference to go against and, and, and kind of a system to go into where we can minimize duplication and to drive reuse. And then more practically, even as teams are constructing, right, providing some of the framework so that, right, here's how you find, right, here are the standards so that you can find the right APIs, because it does no good, right, there, we also had a discoverability problem. It's like, hey, we have APIs in a central place, but no one knew how to find them. And so that wasn't very helpful. So a framework that says, okay, right, here's the pattern of behavior and here's where you can go, not only at the macro level of, hey, this should belong in this area, but as you're constructing the capability, right, how you can drive reuse. And then finally, on standards, right, and, and, and kind of defining and then helping me enforce uh, the standards. Not to say everything should be standard, right, because I think that's a mistake, but, you know, making the judgment call of what are the things that are mature enough and common enough that they can and should be standardized. To the point earlier, a lot of the DevOps technology is very mature that every organization or anyone who does software basically just needs one core set, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so those are the three things, I think, that have, you know, I would say, they focus on, and as we've done this shift to more you know, the product management and product model operations and mindset, I think the enterprise architecture has had increasing importance and weight on, on those skills. Hmm. I, I noticed that you've also had data architecture there as well. Yeah. Here, you know, for us, we are still early, but we're aware, right? And I think we've gotten better about the business and the technology with, the, with data becoming more important as a source of value. I think we're also looking to integrate that as well, right? So we're just building some of the foundation, which is, hey, we should have a data architecture review. A team should know what normal form is, right? And teams should you know, optimize for storage or access, right? Or whatever the outcome is based on, right, tied in with the business outcome. It's not le any less important than security design or, or the technical architecture. So data is new for us and it's an emerging, right? I think we'll continue to have to invest more. These are great insights. I really appreciate you taking time. This interview featured insights that you'll find in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. In an era of unprecedented technology progress and disruption, it's imperative that companies transform themselves to keep up with their digitally native competitors. In Getting to Nimble, I explore how companies, including Capital One, FedEx, CarMax, Domino's Pizza, The Washington Post, Walmart, and others, have modernized their practices related to people, processes, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. And I provide a framework for companies looking to do the same.